Well, good morning, and uh, it is a great pleasure and privilege to be with you. Uh, Before we turn to our sermon text, uh, let me say thank you for the uh, warm invitation and the warm welcome you've given me uh, this morning. I do bring with me the greetings of uh, Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Placerville. Uh, We uh, bring you to mind uh, as the Lord enables us and keep you in our prayers. Uh, I met Brother Joe some years ago uh, when I was uh, down here in Southern California and uh, we've remained in contact and developed a friendship uh, since that time and as he mentioned earlier in the service, um, we were greatly uh, blessed and privileged as he ministered God's word in uh, our congregation almost a year ago uh, as uh, we were heading out of town for the General Assembly and so uh, in the Lord's providence. He has uh, given me the privilege to come and minister God's word to you here. And so uh, it's great to be uh, here in Hemet at Emmaus. Uh, Often heard much about you, but not had opportunity to be physically here. So that's a great privilege uh, this morning. But having said all that, let us now turn to God's word and to Psalm 1. Psalm number 1, the very beginning of the Psalter, and reading verses 1 through 6. Psalm 1 and verses 1 through 6. Let us hear God's word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. If I were to take a survey of the people in Hemet this morning, perhaps including ourselves in this congregation, and ask them the question, what would they most want in all of the world, then I wonder what would be at the top of that list. What would be the top of your list this morning? What do you want most in this world? No doubt for some they would want fame and fortune. Many look for that, don't they, today, as in all generations. Others, perhaps, might look for success and satisfaction in this life. Others might simply want good health if they struggle with various illnesses and sicknesses. Others might want to be loved because they lack that. There may be many different answers to the question, what do you want most in life? 
Perhaps some might put it just so simply and say, I just want to be happy. That's all I want. I don't want fame and fortune. I don't want success and satisfaction. I just want to be happy. But who gets to be happy in this world? And how do they get to be happy? Is it related to who they are and what they do? Well, Psalm 1 this morning shows us that the righteous man, the one who pursues heavenly wisdom, is the one who is blessed or truly happy, whereas the wicked, those who despise God and his ways and his law, even though they may think that they are happy for a time, they are the ones who will come to a miserable end at the end of it all. And so as we look at Psalm 1 this morning, we're going to consider four things. First of all, just to help us work through our text, we're going to consider the literary structure of the psalm. And then secondly, we're going to look at the way of the righteous. Thirdly, we're going to look at the way of the wicked. And then we're going to conclude with a perplexing consequence. So first of all then, and very briefly, let's look at the literary structure of this psalm. Of course, the psalms are poetry, uh, a special kind of literature. And here we see this in Psalm number 1. Of course, the language that it uses is poetic, not that which you expect to read in just normal narrative or in any other form of literature. But not only just in the words they use, the expressions, the language, the very way in which the psalm is constructed is very carefully chosen by the author. Notice here that the two ways are contrasted, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. First of all, what we see is the way of the righteous, verses 1 through 3. But within that, we see, first of all, a description of the righteous, verses 1 and 2, and then a picture of that righteous person. And then that's mirrored in the second half of the psalm, where we see the way of the wicked, again broken up to, into a picture of the wicked in verse 4, and then 5 and 6, a broader description of the wicked. Now, for the Hebrew psalmist, uh, this was put together very deliberately in this way, mirroring the two ways. He starts off with a description and then a picture, and then he reverses it, a picture and a description. If you like the technical terms, it's called a chiasm in Hebrew poetry, a pattern where you go A, B, then B, A. Um, it's not so important, you remember all those technicalities, but it helps us to work our way through the psalm to see what the psalmist is doing and how he put together this particular psalm in God's word. So with that said, by way of the structure of the psalm, let's move into the heart of what he says here. So secondly, we come to the way of the righteous. And first of all, we see a broad description of the righteous in verses 1 through 2. 
He starts by looking at it negatively and telling us what the righteous man is not. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So blessedness, happiness, true happiness, living life to the full, as we might put it in our modern terms, the person who is the one who is to be envied in true terms above all others, according to the scriptures, is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, the psalmist's main point here is that the righteous man, the blessed man, the happy man, is the one who totally rejects the life of wickedness, of ungodliness. He does not walk in their counsel. He does not stand in their way. He does not sit in their seat. But then he flips to the positive aspect, verse 2 viewed positively a description of the righteous. The man who is blessed, the man who is happy, the man who is righteous is the one who not only fears God, but more specifically here, here, delights in the law of the Lord. Here he describes godliness by the one who studies and obeys the law of the Lord. Now, this is to teach us that God is only rightly served when his law is obeyed. It is not left to every man, to each one of us, to simply frame a system of religion according to our own preference, to our own judgment. We hear that very much in our own day and generation, don't we? Just a desire to uh, formulate our own spirituality. I have the right to make it the way I want it to be. That is not according to the law of the Lord. It's not left to every man to just figure it out for what he might prefer. But the standard of godliness is taken from the word of God and the word of God alone. Notice here too that the focus is not just on outward compliance. The focus is on the inward disposition on the very attitude of the heart that then leads to the outward acts and behavior. In other words, that teaches again this morning here that mere outward compliance, whether it is coerced, whether it's forced, or whether it's just out of some servile obedience, is not acceptable to God as true worship before him. It is only those who delight in the law of the Lord. As the psalmist often says, those are the ones who are accounted as righteous, as blessed, and those who are then truly happy. Well, so much for the description of the righteous. That then is supplemented then with this second part of this description in verse 3, a picture of that righteousness, of that righteous man. So here we see in what ways the righteous man is to be accounted happy. Not because he just enjoys some fleeting and empty gladness that is often to be experienced in this world. Sometimes even those who are of the wicked can say for a moment or two they're happy about some temporal circumstance, can't they? That's not the picture here. 
What's the picture of the truly blessed, happy man? He is one that has a lasting joy, a lasting delight, a lasting blessedness. And that's pictured here as one who is planted by streams of water like a mighty, vibrant, vigorous tree. A tree that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. It's a picture of permanence, isn't it? So here we can think of that in our own uh, place here, can't we, in in California. Uh, I spent some time here for three years when I was at school down in seminary. And uh, having come from uh, England, then I knew what it was to be in a land where it was much drier and how precious water was and how necessary it was in order for things to flourish. Now, where I come from, you tend to not have to worry about that too much. It rains so much that you don't really have to irrigate other than that which the Lord sends, usually on a a daily basis. Um, But here coming to California, I understood that from a very different perspective, that if you want uh, flourishing trees and plants, uh, you need to think about it being planted by streams of water, whether they are natural or whether they are those that you uh, provide by way of irrigation. And so that's the picture here. Uh, Here is one that is planted by that which enables it to uh, have life and to be sustained and to be vibrant and to be permanent, not just for a moment, but season by season bearing its fruit. That's the picture here, the constancy of uh, the foliage and the fruit that comes from this healthy tree is the picture of the truly righteous and blessed man. Well, then that brings us in the third place by way of contrast to the way of the wicked in verses 4 through 6. Now, remember the structure of the poetry. We start this time with the picture and then come to the general description. So what is the picture of the wicked, verse 4? Well, instead of seeing them here as uh, a dry, barren shrub even, one that is denied, you've uh, not had your irrigation turned on sufficiently, and it's just starting to wilt. It isn't even that picture. The picture is rather that of just mere chaff. It is just the outward dead husk of the seed that he says is the picture of the wicked. It doesn't even have substance. You may know if, and we had this experience once or twice in our yard when not really understanding how much water we needed to put on, then something dies. Uh, It withers, but there's still some substance. There's still some branches and some leaves and some root and so on. Uh, That's not even the picture the psalmist uses here. He just used the dry chaff of the outer uh, part of, of the fruit or the seed here. He says, by way of contrast, that is what the wicked are like. Uh, it's dryness versus planted by water. It's barrenness versus fruitfulness. It is something that is not permanent versus the constancy of that vibrant tree. It's a picture of deadness versus life and vitality. And you also see that in the very language the psalmist uses. Notice how many more words and expressions he uses in verse 3, how uh, extensive the description is of life. But in verse 4, it is very terse, isn't it? It's very abrupt. He just says, the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. The contrast is meant to strike us. 
uh, both in the words, the expressions, and in the very uh, relative lengths of these descriptive pictures. Well, then we come to the final section, then verses 5 and 6, the description of the wicked. Now, though the wicked often seek to please themselves in this world and to enjoy themselves with all that they can have in this world, though they think they are happy and enjoying themselves, the psalmist assures us here that those things that even they try to use to ensure their happiness will not remain. In the end, they will fade away. They do not remain in their present state. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so when God comes to judge the world and to restore all things at the great consummation, then the wicked shall be entirely deprived. That's what the psalmist says here. Entirely deprived of their pleasures and then will come crashing in on them the great sobering realization that they have been sadly deceived all of their lives when they thought they were happy, thought they had some satisfaction, thought they had some enjoyment, but in the end it has left them thoroughly wanting and facing God in judgment. So how might we summarize Psalm 1 here? Well, it's considered, of course, by many scholars and commentators as what is known as a universal wisdom psalm. It is to teach wisdom. Where do I find true happiness and blessedness? How am I to be warned not to follow the follies of this world? And indeed, it uh, does an excellent job, of course, as the inspired word of God in teaching such wisdom. It teaches that the righteous are the ones who are truly blessed. They are the ones who will ultimately prosper. But the wicked, however, they might seek to enjoy things temporarily. Remember the writer to the Hebrews warns uh, those uh, who profess that there are uh, the pleasures of sin, but they're only for a season. It reminds uh, those who seek to live their lives that way, that it will come to an end. The wicked are not blessed. They are not truly happy. They uh, will come to face judgment. So that's how we might summarize Psalm 1, teaching that wisdom. The righteous are blessed and ultimately prosper. The wicked are not blessed and they do not prosper. But that's a problem for us this morning as we come to a perplexing consequence. There's a problem with this. It teaches true wisdom. The righteous are the ones who are blessed and prosper. But the problem, the perplexing consequence of this text this morning is, but there's no one righteous, right? Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and following, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
And so how are we to obtain blessedness and righteousness? The way is clear. It is for the righteous. But the problem is there's none righteous this morning. Not even one of us here this morning. A perplexing consequence. Well, if we were to leave the sermon this morning, it would have spoken truth. But it would leave us all in despair, wouldn't it? Because how can we ever obtain blessedness and happiness? But I want to turn you back to the very beginning of the psalm where it says, blessed is the man. Now, of course, this can be applied generally, as we have thought already. The one who lives like this, the one who uh, conducts himself like this, will indeed be blessed, will prosper, will enjoy happiness. But, of course, there is no one on the face of the earth. All have sinned, Paul has said, and fallen short of the glory. There's no one righteousness. But as we look more carefully at the beginning of this verse, verse 1 of Psalm 1, we notice that here it is in the singular, blessed is the man. Masculine, singular, noun for those who like their grammar. And in that, of course, it is a messianic reference to the anointed one who would come, the righteous one. Because as we see the psalm in the light of all of Scripture, and particularly in the full light of the New Testament Scriptures, who is first and foremost the only one who can fulfill the condition here? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Who only can satisfy that. The Lord Jesus, right? The Lord Jesus. Remember how the writer to the Hebrews describes him. Hebrews 10 at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When we think of our Lord Jesus come into this world incarnate, remember both at his baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration, there were those great words of approval, of approbation from the Father. What were those words? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. One who delighted in the law of the Lord, in the will of his heavenly Father. Christ is the blessed man of Psalm 1, who walked not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stood in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of scoffers, but his delight was in the law of the Lord. I delight to do your will, O God. That's why the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And yet, as we see our Lord, as he came into this world, as we sang in our hymn this morning, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The picture was not one of seeming blessedness and happiness, was it? 
for our Lord as he came into this world. And so we might ask the question in the light of Psalm 1 this morning, if Jesus is the righteous one, if he is the blessed man, then why didn't he prosper? Why didn't he have that true blessedness and happiness as he walked in this world? Why does he resemble more the chaff of verse 4? And indeed, that vibrant, living, fruitful tree of verse 3. Well, the prophet Isaiah tells us why. Isaiah 53, he grew up, verse 2, like a root out of dry ground. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. That's the picture of our Lord Jesus, isn't it? More like chaff than this vibrant, fruitful tree. Why? Why, if our Lord is the righteous man, Why didn't he prosper then? Isaiah goes on to tell us. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our Lord didn't prosper so that we might. He was the righteous, we are the unrighteous. Therefore, he ought to have known happiness and blessedness and not be a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs. We were the ones who ought to have known that for all of eternity and had no right to blessedness, happiness, prospering. He endured that suffering and sorrow for us in order that we might know the blessedness of God in Christ. If you prefer it in New Testament language, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That is why he is the righteous man, but he was made sin for his people in order that they might become the righteousness of God in him. Well then, brothers and sisters, what is the appropriate response to this as we hear God's word this morning? There are a number of aspects to this that I just want to sketch out for you. And uh, I commend these things to you for your meditation in this week that is coming, for we don't have the time to flesh all of these out and do justice to them as, as they so deserve. But in the light of Jesus, the righteous one, who came for our sakes, that we become righteous in him and so can know the blessedness and the happiness and the prosperity that God promises to all who come to Christ in repentance of faith. What is our proper response? 
Well, first of all, we are to meditate on that law of the Lord and make a right use of it. Now, that does not mean, and I want to say this very clearly this morning, that our use of the law is in order to become righteous. We're not seeking to keep the law in order to merit righteousness. We cannot do that. The Word of God has already told us there is no one righteous, no, not one. So we're not trying to do it as a means of salvation. If you were going to do that, then you have to do that as Christ did it. You have to do it perfectly, you have to do it personally, and you have to do it perpetually. And not one of us can do that. So to keep the law for the Christian is not as a means of salvation. We cannot do that. Paul tells us, Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. So to make a right use of the law as the believer is not to try and keep it in order to gain salvation. But what is it to do? First of all, it is to drive us to Christ, the one who has done it for his people, the one who is the great saviour of sinners. That's why Paul goes on in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So we don't seek to keep that law in order to merit our salvation. But why is the Christian to meditate upon the law? What is the Christian to do in the keeping of the law? Rather, we keep it in order that it might be our great acknowledgement, our great offering to the Lord of gratitude and thankfulness. Will we ever do it perfectly in this life? No. But the sacrifice of Christ is there to cover our sins and to cover our shortcomings. But nevertheless, we are still to meditate on this law day and night and do it as the Lord now enables us with that renewed heart, that new inward disposition as our great offering of gratitude and thankfulness to God for all that he has done for us. Secondly, what is our response to this text? We are to thank God that because of Christ, he will not treat believers as the chaff, but indeed they will truly flourish and prosper. We are to be very thankful this morning that though we are chaff by nature, deserving nothing but God's just judgment, the way of the wicked will perish. Yet because of our Savior Jesus Christ, he will not treat us as chaff, but indeed we will flourish and prosper. Again, I was very glad when our brother read John 3.16 this morning by way of uh, reading of the uh, great assurance of forgiveness of sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Our Lord went on to say in John 15 verse 5, I am the vine, those very familiar words, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruits. Because of Christ, we're not treated as chaff to be burned up in God's consummate eternal judgment, but we will flourish and prosper. We will not perish, but we will bear much 
fruits. And then thirdly, we are to acknowledge and understand that much of this is still yet to come in all of its glory and fullness. Our hope is, as often the theologians call it, future-oriented. It is yet to come in all of its glory. Now, our blessedness in Christ is already here. It has begun. We are united to him by faith. We've already participated, and we are participating in that blessedness and happiness and prospering. But we have not yet received it all, as the Scripture tells us, in all of its consummate fullness. That's why we use those terms already, but not yet. Both are reality. Of course, as we think about the pattern of our Lord's life, it instructs us. That's the pattern of our lives as believers in this world. What was the pattern of Christ's life? Well, of course, his father watched over him, his way that led through suffering to glory. That was the pattern, wasn't it? From suffering to glory, a state of humiliation first and then a state of exaltation. And so it is for others, brother. So it is for us, brothers and sisters. We will live and walk a pilgrim way, a pilgrim way that leads to eternal life. And so union with Christ involves suffering first and then the consummate glory that comes thereafter. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's already the reality. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are a blood-bought, adopted son and daughter of the King. Already. And yet Paul goes on in that text to say, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Have we received, as those blood-bought children, the fullness of the inheritance yet? No, not yet, says Paul. You have received the down payment, but there's so much more yet to come. That's why Peter says that inheritance is kept for you and you for it, but we have not yet received it. Our hope is in the future for the fullness of that glory. And so, finally then, we see here... If the application of this text, the right response is that we are to have the right expectations of the Christian life in this world before we are taken to glory. Now, sometimes we don't have those expectations set right, do we? Uh, we sometimes wish that the Lord would uh, make it all glory now, instantly, from the moment we turn in faith to Christ. But the Lord in his wisdom has ordered that it is not so. Faithful servants of God are to endure suffering, persecution sometimes, even as our Lord himself did, the model of suffering leading to glory. We have to admit, don't we, as Christians, and perhaps you've had that experience this past week, that doing the right thing, seeking to do the law of God as your great act of gratitude and thankfulness to the Lord, doesn't always guarantee that you will be immediately blessed and happy in this world. In fact, it might lead to greater difficulties in this world from those who are the unrighteous and the wicked. 
And so as we might come back to our text this morning and say, well, how can we as Christians affirm the truth, the true wisdom of Psalm 1 in a world where the righteous don't always prosper and where sometimes the wicked appear to do very well, thank you. And they seem quite happy when the Christian has to suffer. How can Psalm 1 be true then in the experience of the Christian? Of course, we remember the experience of the psalmist in Psalm 73. You remember when he looked at that reality, that it seemed it was the people of God who were always suffering, and it was the wicked who were always prospering, no matter how much wickedness, they did fine. You remember what the psalmist said, Psalm 73. He says his, his foot had almost slipped. He'd almost lost uh, the grasp upon this truth. He was almost ready to give it up. To say, you know what, Psalm 1 isn't true because of what I see with my eyes in this world. And what was it that brought him back to see, oh yes it is, despite what you see. Remember when he says, but when I entered the temple of God which in Old Testament language is to come back into the perspective of seeing it from God's perspective. The believer in the presence of God, seeing everything in the light of the purposes of God. Then he was set back on a firm foundation, wasn't he? His feet weren't slipping when he saw that, yes, temporarily, the wicked might have some fleeting happiness in their wickedness in this world. But in the end, they are going to perish. And it is the righteous one. Even though he may have to suffer for a little while in this world, even as our Lord did, will ultimately be taken to glory, will know happiness and blessedness and prosperity. What that's telling us and what Psalm 1 is telling us is it is true. There is true wisdom here. But in the Lord's sovereign purposes, there is what we might call a temporal discontinuity between what the Lord says here by way of promise and the ultimate consummate experience of it as the Christian. That temporal disjunction between promise and reality. It's already there in principle, but the fullness of the experience of that is yet to come. And so it's by faith that we must confess the truth of this as we confess Christ. We need Christ as the righteous man of Psalm 1 to save us from our sins, to deliver us from that state of wickedness. But by faith then we have to confess that it is the righteous one who is blessed even though it isn't always our immediate, constant experience in this world, in terms of there are still trials to endure, sufferings to go through. But to confess that everyone is blessed who puts their faith in the covenant-keeping God, the one who gave his word here. What's the guarantee of that when you don't experience the immediate reality of this every moment, when there are difficulties in the Christian life? What's the guarantee that this is true? Again, it's Christ and his great work completed in life, death, resurrection and ascension. It's through the pattern that we saw in his life of suffering leading to glory. And so in the present, there is suffering. We need our expectations set correctly. But the future is glory, brothers and sisters. 
The future is glory, which outweighs, as Paul says, the present sufferings. You may remember how the Apostle Paul called his difficulties light and momentary afflictions. I wonder if you've ever thought about that text for any uh, length of time. And think about the way in which the Apostle Paul sets forth to the Corinthian church the many things he had to go through. The beatings, the stonings, the imprisonment, um, being kind of whipped with, uh, by, by Romans. Um, some of the physical sufferings he had to go through. The health issues that, that he had, we don't know the details of. But remember, he pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away. And the Lord said, no. He had to undo those things. Do you think the apostles sometimes thought, well, where is the blessedness today of Psalm 1? And yet in the light when he saw, as Psalm 73 tells us, when he evaluated all that from God's perspective, from the divine purpose perspective, he could call those things light and momentary afflictions. Now, I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but I've never had to undo the imprisonment, the beatings, the stonings, the shipwreck. Um, Not much, by the way, of um, uh, health issues. I've been very thankful to God for a relatively good health. And yet, so how quickly can we want to mourn, don't we, and complain about our difficulties in this life, in this fallen world? Uh, We don't call them light and momentary afflictions. We say, you know, it's like the end of the world has come. You know, if, if the Lord, why does he let this happen to me? You see, it's only when we see it from the perspective here of Psalm 1, Psalm 73, New Testament language, light and momentary afflictions. How does Paul say that? Because he sees it compared with, in the light of, the eternal weight of glory hereafter. Because Christianity is not just some stoic Greek philosophy, or where I come from in England, what we call the stiff upper lip. You just have to get on with it. It may not be what you like, what you want, but you've just got to endure it. That's all what God is saying here. He's saying in the light of what will come, in the future weight of glory, then this is a light and momentary affliction seen in that perspective. And so for us, things often appear to be at the mercy of chance even, don't they? Why does these things happen? Whether to me personally, or to whether a loved one, or to to a community in which I'm living, why is this happening to us? And it's not always easy for us in the midst of that uh, situation, perhaps some prevailing confusion of our thinking, to acknowledge the truth of what the psalmist says here in Psalm 1. But he is presenting truth here. He is declaring the truth of God. And it follows from that then, it cannot but be well with the righteous and the upright. No matter what we have to temporarily pass through in the sufferings and afflictions of this world, brethren. It cannot but be true that we are indeed blessed. We are indeed the happy ones in this world. And it cannot but be true that those who think that they can be happy in their rebellion and sin against God are in the end thoroughly and totally disappointed. Their pleasures, however fleeting, come to an end. 
Sometimes according to the outward appearance of things. The servants of God may think that, well, what benefit is there being one of the righteous? That's the, the problem of Psalm 73, isn't it? Where he said, you know, so what's the point here? I'm suffering for all of this. What's the point of that? We, we attempted to think in that way. But as one of the commentators puts it, he puts it like this. He says, quote, According to all outward appearance, the servants of God may derive no advantage from their uprightness, but as it is the peculiar office of God to defend them and take care of their safety, they must be happy under his protection. And that commentator goes on to say, From this we may also conclude that, as God is the certain avenger of wickedness, although for a time he may seem to take no notice of the ungodly, yet at length he will visit them with destruction. End quote. And so instead of allowing ourselves to be um, deceived into thinking that happiness comes from the pleasures of this world, that we're getting away with it, Perhaps you are someone in this congregation this morning who's saying, well, my life's going well enough, thank you. I don't need God. I get to do what I want. I'm enjoying my life. The Word of God warns you this morning, even though God may be permitting that, one day that is going to come to an end. And then you will have all of eternity to rue the life that you have lived. Even though it seems that God is overlooking that, He will not overlook it forever. The wicked will perish. But to those who look to God in Christ, recognizing that they are unrighteous, no one is righteous, no, not one, and turn to him in saving faith, then they come to know that they are the righteousness of God in Christ and they truly will be blessed. So how might we conclude this morning? Psalm 1 here shows that the righteous man who pursues heavenly wisdom is the one who is blessed. Whereas the wicked who despise God, even though they may think they are happy for a time, are the ones who will come to a miserable end. Someone does not guarantee success in everything and happiness in every circumstance for the believer. But God does take care of all those who are his in his son. Preserving them, keeping them, sustaining them, even till that glory which he has promised them in the life hereafter. What's the guarantee of that truth this morning? Perhaps your faith has been shaken this past week. You're more where the Psalm 73 psalmist is than the great triumphant declaration of Psalm 1 this morning. The foundation is Christ and his work. The pattern of his great work, suffering to glory, completed guarantees the truth of what is said here and in the end brothers and sisters there will be no regrets for any Christian in the glory hereafter for having their allegiance to God in Christ for having walked the pilgrim way those who walk in the way of wickedness will have as I've said all of eternity to regret the life that they have lived the rejection of God's grace and mercy in Christ no Christian will ever have any reason to be disappointed 
to think, well, this wasn't the happiness I thought I was going to receive. We will have no reason to regret for having trusted in the truth of God in this psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. May God grant it to each one of us here this morning. Amen.